Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. In the book of John, there are seven signs, and it is usually self-evident what the sign or the miracle pertains to. The changing of the water into wine, clearly it's speaking of the wedding feast of the Lamb, the inauguration of a new age. The cleansing of the temple, well, Jesus explains that he's the true temple. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And John says that he was referring to his own body, his own self. The multiplication of the loaves means God will provide. And the walking on the water and calming of the storm pictures Jesus as the one who controls nature. The cure of the man born blind, well clearly it points to his giving sight, spiritual sight. And of course the sign, the last sign, the raising of Lazarus points to the ultimate sign that Jesus has power over death. Now I've said the easy thing, but chapter 5 is a little more complicated and here is a sign, here's one of the seven signs and let's read it and see what the meaning of this sign. In other words, the signs, the miracles are all giving a lesson. So what's the lesson here? Let's read chapter 5 beginning with verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. In some of your translations, there has been an addition that is not there 
in the original. And that addition puts the magical elements of the pool as if this is of God. That's not in the original that the angel of God stirs this up. So there's this magical belief attached to the pool. And people believe that if they got there first, in other words, the water boils up or stirs up or something, and if they step into the water, they're going to be healed. And no one seems to question the magical quality of the pool. And part of the point of the miracle is that Jesus is challenging this notion. Now he's going to challenge this notion and the Jewish notion of the Sabbath. And my point is here, I think that they're very similar ideas. That is that God is thought to some way arbitrarily heal through blind and impersonal forces. That it's the angel of God. And in the story, then, no one questions Jesus' ability to heal either. But their problem is that he would heal on the Sabbath. In other words, they believe the law of the Sabbath is more important than this poor man laying by the pool who's been there 38 years. Law is more important than the suffering of the man. Let the man suffer, but he broke the law. They assume the law is primary. And it's the primary work. In other words, they imagine this is the way God works. This is the way God deals with us. But the healing, I think, is a sign that the actions of Jesus must be understood as the actions of God himself. You know, this is the last phrase. God is working and I'm working. The Sabbath, they thought, oh, well, God is taking a break. And Jesus said, no, he's not taking a break. God is at work. The son, he says in verse 19, we didn't read this, but on down, the son can do nothing by himself. He heals a man who believed that God's power was an impersonal force present in the pool. And by doing so on the Sabbath, he confronts those who assume that the Jesus wields God's power independent of God's will. In other words, nobody ever said to Jesus in John, you can't do this. They didn't question his ability to heal. They just said, oh, your healing is illegal. Both the Jewish authorities and the man healed, they have a kind of nihilistic picture of God, a kind of impersonal idea that, oh, well, the water stirs and it's a kind of impersonal force. It's the Sabbath. God works through the law. It's a kind of... In, in other words, God is removed from us and we have these powers and forces and we identify God through those. And Jesus heals the man and said, no, God is working through what I'm doing and what I'm doing, it changes up. It should change up their view of God. The healing serves as a sign that Jesus does only what the Father does. God is doing something new through Jesus which surpasses the impersonal force of the law, their impersonal view of God. John is he's challenging a false teaching like we see in Galatians. You know, the, the Judaizers, they have this same problem. What would later come to be called Gnosticism, it's premised on this sort of understanding we see Jesus challenging here. That is, my father is working and I am working. God is really here. And the Gnostics and the Jews see God as working indirectly. Oh, there's these forces. These, there's these laws. And Jesus says, no, God works directly. 
God does not disassociate himself from his power so as to make it possible for Jesus to use God's power contrary to God's will. See, that's what they're saying. Well, we know you healed the man and you, oh, I guess God did that, but maybe God didn't want you to do that. God is present, Jesus is saying, in the power, and I'm demonstrating this to you. God wills directly. He does not work indirectly. The sense then is this, my father has not set his power loose in the world to be accessed as a kind of independent force, either magical or through the law. If his power is at work in the world, it is because my father is personally at work. I think we feel this. This is a, a problem that we have too. The idea that the law is in some way the final force in the universe, that's kind of part of the modern worldview, isn't it? That with the modern scientific revolution. It may be that we stand very close to the notion the law is just absolute, the, this notion Jesus is challenging. I don't know if you're familiar with existentialism I was trying to explain to Lois as we were swimming but existentialism actually begins with this very dark view that is very similar to Gnosticism in a kind of nihilistic hopelessness that we might face in the world you know imagine this man this sort of cruelty that must have been at work in people when they see a man healed Rather than rejoicing, they say, hey, buddy, you can't do that on the Sabbath. They believe that Jesus has somehow managed to draw upon God's power to heal the man in a way that God himself would not condone. Oh, God works through the law. And such a view of God's power as a kind of impersonal, you know, depersonalized understanding is at odds with the ongoing presence and activity. God is present, Jesus is saying. He's working through me. And Jesus rejects the assumption that he was some sort of magician, some sort of manipulator, equal to the magic of the pool. Against this assumption, Jesus insists that both God's power is not impersonal and that there is an inseparable and active connection between his deeds, his miracles, and the working of God. My father is still working and I am working. So much as the Jews see God's power working apart from divine sanction, this is the way they regard the Sabbath law. It possesses authority that is independent of any ongoing expression of the divine will. And Jesus' command to the healed man to carry his mat, it's a kind of deliberate provocation. Jesus is going to do this in John. He's going to challenge the, the Sabbath laws. So the Jews said to the man, it's the Sabbath. It's against the law for you to be carrying your bed. In other words, that's their main problem. So they see God's power working through Jesus, Apart from divine sanction, so too they regard the Sabbath law as possessing an authority that is independent of God. And so then the healed man, he explains that he, the man who healed me, well, he told me to carry my mat. Wouldn't someone who healed him have the authority to tell him to take up his mat and walk? Wouldn't someone who has the power of healing be able to abrogate, be able to change up the law? See, that's really what's being worked up here. 
Who has the true power here? Is it the power of the law? Is it the power of Jesus? And of course the claim in John is that Jesus is literally the one who encompasses the law. He's bigger than the law. That is, they're bypassing the healing authority of Jesus as relevant. They're really bypassing God, right? That's what's happening. Here's God in the flesh and they're bypassing him. And both the invalid and the Jews believe divine power and authority is this kind of impersonal thing. In John 7, 21, Jesus attacks the Jews for interpreting the Sabbath law exactly the way they do here. He says, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's body whole? And so God's power is not impersonal. Jesus' activity is a revelation. It is God with us. It is Emmanuel. He uses God's power, not independent of God or in violation of God, but here is God. That's the point of the miracle, I think. Jesus, in submission to the Father, you know, he says that I only do what my Father wills. It's so complete, his submission, so absolute, that you can, as he says to Thomas, Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, I think as modern people, we suffer a bit. You know, this is the modern scientific revolution, the Copernicus and Galileo, that we see, oh, how does God work? Well, God works through law. That we now can state mathematically how the planets rotate. We understand law seems that this is Newtonian science, that law is absolute. And the individual then is kind of knocked from the center of the universe with the modern scientific revolution. Blaise Pascal, who is a deeply religious man, many think he's the first to feel this sense of being knocked from the center of the universe. He talks about the fright that he feels. And rather than finding himself at home in the universe, Pascal describes what we would come to think of as existentialism. That is, that existentialism begins with this nihilistic picture. Oh, here's a poor man laying by the pool. The forces of nature, you know, they crush us. And we're all alone in the universe. And there's a kind of profound alienation. This understanding is under a Latin phrase, Deus absconditus. The Protestant Reformation is going to hold to this understanding of Pascal. And that is the idea that God has absconded. You know, that's there in deism, that God is distant, that God is removed, that God works through the law, that God is fundamentally unknowable. This is the teaching of John Calvin. It's the teaching of Martin Luther. It's the teaching of Nicholas of Cusa. It's the teaching of Pascal. Now, Pascal is Roman Catholic, but he's a Jansenist. And so there's a whole branch of Roman Catholicism that is going to take this up. The notion that kind of accentuates the absoluteness of the law, the human loneliness in the face of modern cosmology. The world is a machine and the gears of the machine just grind on whether they grind people up or not. Better to let a man suffer at the fate of the law than imagine we can change up the human situation. And Pascal speaks of a fundamental fear 
cast into the infinite immensity of spaces of which I am ignorant and which know me not, I am frightened. The universe is immense. It's huge. It's machine-like. It doesn't acknowledge me. It doesn't know of my presence. It's indifferent. And the universe then gives rise to the feeling of complete insignificance. The universe is blind. We're thrown up accidentally. We're born accidentally. And so we're crushed and die accidentally. So Pascal says, I am frightened and amazed at finding myself here rather than there. For there is no reason whatever why here rather than there. Why now rather than then. That is the universe, the world seems to have no purpose. I imagine the man beside the pool felt that, right? Now we should regard ourselves as lost, locked away in the prison cell in which we find ourselves. He says, I mean the universe. Purpose, telos, has been lost as utter contingency, this is his phrase, of existence gives rise to the feeling of being out of place. There are these blind forces. Pascal believes in God, but even God is working through blind forces. And the law then, and very much the false teaching of the Jews, the false teaching of the Gnostics, has become the predominant view in the modern age. There are no values and the self. And this is a, a Jewish thinker called Hans Jonas. He says, we've been thrown back entirely upon ourselves in the quest for meaning. Friedrich Nietzsche in a poem, now man is alone with himself, the world's a gate to desert stretching mute and chill, who once has lost what thou hast lost stands nowhere still. Woe unto him who has no home. God is unknown, he's unknowable, the universe does not reveal the creator's purpose it only reveals power and the reason for the universe eludes human beings it becomes a question we can't answer i mean even for christians you understand and the only other epic i think that compares to this kind of cataclysmic event is what we're seeing beginning to arise here in John, this kind of Gnostic false teaching that by the second century becomes a distinct religion. That is that there's going to be an absolute rift between man and the world and the feeling of alienation, the feeling that magic powers or the power of God are blind and impersonal and that human beings are aliens to the world and true deity is beyond the world. God is unknown totally unknowable. And it's not that the world is chaotic, rather it is a cosmos of order, but order with a vengeance, alien to man's aspirations. So what if you're lying by a pool for 38 years? The universe is a complete and orderly system. The law that orders the system has always dominated humankind. You know, that's the law. That's what we're tapping into. Man, though, is counted out of the necessities of the law. And so we might call the law fate. Some people call it providence. And this providence, this fate, is a kind of tyrant. I think that's what the law had become for the Jews. What the man at the pool imagines is that providence or fate is a blind force. 
rather than change this understanding as Christ would. That's what Jesus is changing up, right? He's going to do away with that whole understanding. You know, the Gnostics, I think moderns accept what the man at the pool believed, what the Jews believed. Dread is the soul's response to its being in the world. And this is a recurrent theme in Gnostic literature. Where does wisdom begin? Buddy, you're in trouble. The world is a fearful place. And you're just a little seed in a cog that's going to crush you. And it's the self's reaction to the discovery of this situation that marks, you know, in, in this Gnostic false teaching, the awakening. And so true knowledge begins with this nihilistic understanding. And so Nietzsche can declare, God is dead. I think that pervades the Gnostic understanding all, also. The God of the cosmos is dead. That is, that God is removed from us. But in both instances, there's a kind of nihilistic, dark, meaningless vacuum that's created. That the highest values have become devalued. The Gnostic God is unknown. As Hans Jonas puts it, this God has more of the kneel than the ends, more of the negative than the positive. He is totally different. And I believe it's this existential sort of Gnostic nihilism that Jesus is defeating. The sort of belief that would leave a man by a pool for 38 years and instead of rejoicing at his healing would say, wait a minute, you've broken the law. Think of Mother Teresa going to India and working with the sick on the, why don't the Indians do that? Well, don't you understand that's fate, that's karma, that they're sick and dying and that's the fates, that's the law. You can't break the law. The strange thing in this story is verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, You're well. Sin no more. What was this man's sin? He says, Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What does the man do? Well, he seems to sin more. The man went away and told the Jews, Hey, it was Jesus. And from that, then they begin to persecute him. And so Jesus finds the man. He reminds him of experience. He reminds him, hey, God has touched you. That's the power of God. And then he says, stop sinning. Stop thinking in the way that you've been thinking. And in John's gospel, sin is closely associated with unwillingness to believe that Jesus is whom he says he is. That he is God. That here is God revealed. That here is God's power at work. In 1524, the essence of sin is to see the power of God at work through Jesus and refuse to acknowledge it. Here is the self-evidence, you know, self-revealing action of God and Jesus, and people refuse it. Because they believe, oh, the law is at work. Magic is at work. God is impersonal. Jesus says, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated me and my father. He's been healed. They've seen the healing. And they still refuse to believe. And so the command to stop sinning, it must be an admonition to cease regarding God's power as operating in impersonal independence, in law in depersonalized understanding of the working of God. 
apart from acknowledgement of the self-revealing God working in Jesus, the man that was healed, oh, you can only expect worse things to happen to you than this 38-year infirmity. And so the fact the man goes and reports Jesus' identity to the Jews, I get the feeling maybe he didn't get the point. It indicates that his views of God's power remained unchanged. But he ties those views to the Jews and their subsequent, you know, John says, and then they begin to persecute Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is saying something about God that they don't believe. That God is at work in the world. God is present in the world. And they continue to believe in fate, in law. They believe in darkness and nihilism more than they believe in the love and the presence of God. To imagine that we are alone in the universe, either because God has absconded, as Luther thought, or because he does not exist. I think modern atheism is a kind of Gnosticism. It is a kind of sin. It is to abandon the man struggling by the pool. Oh, just leave him there to the fates. It is to leave the blind blind. It is to leave the sick sick. It's to proclaim the law as absolute. And the resolution is very simple. Take up your mat and walk. Open your eyes. Take up your cross so as to crucify this dark world and its powers over you. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.